From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, I'm Emilio San Pedro, and this is the Eurovision News Podcast. Iran has made global headlines over the widespread protests that were sparked by the death of Masa Amini in September of last year. It has been the biggest show of opposition to Iran's clerical establishment since the 1979 revolution. Following her death, protests erupted in more than 80 cities across Iran, leading to a deadly crackdown on protesters and to the arrest of thousands of activists, journalists and citizens. The Islamic regime's brutal treatment of protesters and the lack of free press have made social networks an indispensable source for accessing information from inside the country. To better understand the situation in Iran and the efforts behind accessing verified content, we speak with Masa Aminolahi of the Eurovision Social Newswire. Masa, I remember... During our big deployment, our big coverage here at Eurovision News of the Queen's uh, death and subsequent funeral in, in September, that towards the end of that period, right before the funeral itself, I was sat in the newsroom every single day with our colleagues, and I could hear Derek Bowler, the editor, and yourself and others on the Social Newswire team speaking about Iran and not the Queen. And I kept thinking, why are they not covering the Queen? What's going on? I was so uh, deeply focused in that story. Uh, For once, you know, we normally keep an open kind of array of uh, views on stories across the world. But I was so deeply focused in our coverage of that particular event, that I was personally uh, surprised by this Iran story, and how quickly it, uh, it emerged. Tell us, what it was about it and uh, how it emerged initially. So it was uh, mid-September 2022 that the first bits and pieces of the story uh, began trickling into social media. The story that we, as we know it today, was that uh, Mahsa or Gina Amini uh, traveled from her hometown of Saqiz in Iran's Kurdistan region to Tehran to visit her family along with her brother. Uh, upon arriving in Tehran, she was uh, arrested by a division of police forces, widely known as the Morality Police. In Iran, the literal translation is uh, the Guidance Patrol. Uh, these uh, police units are tasked with um, checking basically women's attire and making sure that they are inconsistent with uh, Islamic laws. So Mahsa Amini was arrested and she was taken to a notorious police station in Tehran where women whose attire are deemed inappropriate are taken. Uh, officials say that she had a heart attack and uh, she slips into a coma. Eyewitnesses who were with Mahsa Amini in that police van and also inside the police station say that she was uh, severely beaten, received severe blows to her head, and that's what happened before her coma. Uh, She's taken to hospital. Uh, Two days later, she passes away, and her death is the catalyst of one of the biggest challenges to the the clerical establishment in Iran. Following Mahsa Amini's death, uh, protests erupted across the country, 
and images started to unfold that were um, unbelievable. Um, with women at the helm of these protests, basically in the most uh, remote or even conservative towns and cities, you could see women taking to the streets, taking off their scarves and burning those scarves. And that's how the story basically began and evolved to this day. Yes, it was those first images of women uh, burning the scarves and, and really defying the uh, authorities in, in, in a way that perhaps hadn't been seen before was was very surprising. What do you think it was about Masa Amini's uh, death that made it such a tipping point for this level of anger? There were two different aspects to this story. One is Masa Amini's own profile. Masa Amini is a woman uh, and she comes from an ethnic minority from Kurdistan, region of Iran, uh, which have been discriminated against for decades during the, the Islamic Revolution and even af- before that. Uh, so here we have two marginalized groups who immediately related with, with her story and they played a pivotal role in these protests, ethnic groups in Iran, minority ethnic groups and women. Apart from that, you have to look at the story from the bigger view of, of Iran as a whole, what happened to Iran at this point of history and what journey the country had throughout the Islamic Republic to reach this point. Iranians throughout decades under the Islamic Republic tried different channels and ways to voice their discontent with the system, be it economy, um, corruption, um, environmental issues, They've tried every aspect of that. And it reached a point where they kind of realized that there is no negotiation with the Islamic Republic, even for the most basic human rights issues. So this was that point when the, when, when a nation realized we've had enough of it, of everything, and we don't want to negotiate anymore. We want to put an end to this. Now, it must be said that the reaction from... Uh our members uh, across the board at the Eurovision News Exchange to the work that you and your colleagues at Social Newswire were doing on this and have done on this story has been overwhelmingly positive. We've received so many compliments, and you have, for the work uh, that you've done. How challenging has it been to source material on this story that you've been so successful uh, as a team uh, to do uh, and that we've been able to share and continue to share so widely. This is a type of the story that uh, relies basically on social media. There's no other way to be able to tell this story visually. Uh, the method through which we work uh, requires us to contact the person who filmed the material, not only to directly ask permission from the person who filmed it, but also to be able to verify firsthand where the footage was filmed and all the other details, to be able to be in touch with the source. Now, keeping in mind that people who are filming content under such circumstances, they are risking their lives. Essentially, we are asking them, can you confirm that you've been in this protest and you've filmed this, this content? And they have to, by admit, admitting that they they've, were there and they filmed this content, they are putting themselves in a great danger. So 
for us, the challenge wasn't only to find the original content creator, because some of these videos immediately become viral and it takes a long time to find the original person or the first person who posted or filmed this video. Apart from that, once you find or you locate the original video, then the real challenge starts because you have to initiate a, a conversation with this person. And if you manage to get them to talk to you, then they need to verify your identity. We, you enter in a negotiation where you want them to admit that they've been in a place they shouldn't have been and they filmed the content they shouldn't have filmed. So this whole negotiation takes a very long time. Regardless of that, of obviously, we've managed to, to clear nearly 180-something videos from Iran. We went through this process, but it's very challenging because we had to keep in mind that that it's a security concern, apart from making sure that the person is, is in a secure place, they can talk to us, that they, are, they keep being secure after giving us the content, that they are not exposing themselves. Also contacting them in a way that it doesn't attract a lot of attention. So going through all these different layers of, of security work to be able to access these individuals needed a long time. Another problem we had was the window through which we could work because internet was blocked in Iran. So you could see only a few hours people started to, to post videos and then there was no access to them because, because they had no access to internet. And that was normally very late at night for us. So we had to kind of use that window to be able to contact the people, send the messages, have this conversation with each and every one in, of these individuals. Um, so it was, it was really challenging. But at the end of the day, we were dealing with a content that people really risked their lives to film that. So they wanted that content to be out. So once we could assure them that we are who we say we are, and their content is safe with us, and it's going to go to basically public broadcasters across Europe mainly. Um, once we established that, then there was no issue with basically making this content accessible to, to all the members. Masa, can you think uh, of one of the stories that you've worked on, one of the videos that you've sourced throughout this whole period that has really resonated with you very strongly? There was uh, one occasion I was looking for videos of the protests and people often post videos or send videos to some of these um, Telegram or some of these Twitter accounts where they trust in them and they can also protect their identity. So one of these famous Twitter accounts that gets a lot of content from Iran, someone posted underneath one of their videos, check your DMs, as in your direct messages. So I realized perhaps this person has something to share and she's calling for their attention. So I went and I added that person on Twitter, hoping that I would get her attention so that she can follow me and then you know we can we can establish a conversation. And that's what happened. She added me back and immediately our private messages open to each other. So how should I go about sending her a message saying, I saw your message to that group and I would like to know if you have something to share. 
So I thought it has to be really in a sensitive manner to gain her trust um, and understanding that in Iran, many links and websites uh, are completely blocked by the government. So people cannot easily just click on something to open it up. So I've provided a lot of links from my own background to make sure that she knows I'm a journalist, but as well providing her screen grabs of what I'm sharing with her in case she couldn't open up the links. So I started establishing myself as I'm a journalist. This is how I work. This is who I work with. This is the content I've been working on. This is how I write the story. Now, I saw your message while I was looking for content, and I was wondering if you have anything to share. And the conversation started from that. It was a very long conversation, and she decided to take the conversation to a more secure uh, Telegram channel. And in that Telegram channel, um, it went on and on. She finally uh, basically trusted me, and she sent me a video that was showing women um, protesting in the in the conservative city, central city in Iran of Yazd, uh, the video showed a woman standing on top of a bin and uh, she's taking off her scarf and someone is helping her uh, burning her scarf. Um, and the video was really strong. Uh, we built this trust and this this basically relationship. Apart from that video, she provided different angles of the same protest, which kind of verified the, the initial video that she shared with me. But also she became a kind of a constant contributor to our coverage. We've kept in touch throughout the protest. Every time there was a protest or something happening, I could easily reach out to her and ask, you've seen anything? Can you confirm if something is happening? Or if she had content, she was personally sending it to us or, you know, kind of talking about the latest what's happening. And through that initial interaction, we've built a reliable source that I, I have been and I am still in touch with. It's interesting to note how these eyewitness contacts that you make can then sometimes become long term or longer term sources for information and future content. That's true. Um, in many occasions, not only Iran, but other stories, there are. we reached out to someone and uh, we use their content. And another, in another occasion, when there's a big story happening in the same location, we see, for example, some people come back to us. That happened in many countries that they come back and say, are you covering this story? Because I filmed this and I thought maybe it's good for your organization. So we keep in touch with some of these sources or they keep coming back to us to share more material with us, knowing that it, it travels afar when, when their material is with, with us. What about the official Iranian government and authorities, their reaction to this? Did any of it surprise you? Uh, how hard they went in uh, to clamp down, for example? Or were you expecting that? No, I, I think it's it's been a textbook. Iranian officials have always one way to react. It's blaming uh, foreign agents. Everything has been managed by foreign agents. And then there is a massive crackdown that happens through different stages. At some point, I thought, because it's essentially the biggest challenge to, to the establishment so far, 
they will find other methods to calm down the nation. But that didn't happen. And that was the surprising factor that, that I thought there might be ways, there might be forces within the system that think this is a real challenge and we have to find alternatives to be able to communicate with the nation. But that didn't happen. And they went through the same method that they've done throughout the history of the Islamic Republic, which is a harsh crackdown on protesters, um, arrest, mass arrest, mass trials, um, kangaroo courts, um, and in this case, uh, mass executions. Um, so it's been basically out of the textbook of the Islamic Republic, unfortunately. And what about the international reaction? There was such a powerful reaction from women, but not just from women, from people from all walks of life reacting to the story, participating in protests around the world. Does that have, other than charging up people outside of Iran, does that have an impact in Iran itself? Absolutely. I think uh, one of the main reasons that people outside the country were really affected by this story was that the image that throughout these years came out of Iran was an Islamic Republic who's basically protesting on certain days of the calendar, burning down U.S. and Israeli flags and, um, you know, the story of hostage taking in the in the U.S. embassy. So that's the image of, of Iran. The political Iran has always been that dark image. And then suddenly women coming out and burning their scarves, burning essentially the one symbol that, that Islamic Republic was not ready to let go of. It was part of its identity. Scarf and hijab was part of that identity of the Islamic Republic. So burning that and confronting this theocracy resonated with people to a point that we've seen women from across the world from politicians to to activists to celebrities cutting their hair and not only women but men really being taken by this story and that's definitely important to Iranians we're talking about a country that um basically that hashtag masamini was created and people really went out of their way to use the hashtag to promote the hashtag so that their voice can be heard outside Iran. It was really important for them, the reaction of the international community, because they know that taking down the Islamic Republic is not possible just by protest of a nation inside the country. They need international support, and international support comes when public opinion is with them. Politicians are normally not the first crew to... to march toward an idea. They need that public pressure to be able to take an action. And unless they don't have that, they cannot count on on basically European and Western politicians to cut ties with the Islamic Republic. So it was very important for Iranians and it was very encouraging to see the reaction that was coming from, from the outside world. And the story is far from over, isn't it? Absolutely. The story... From outside, people often associate social movements with streets. If it doesn't manifest itself through streets, they think it's either in a lull or it's over. 
But what you're seeing from inside Iran, it's some sort of like a palpitation under the skin of, of a country that keeps going. And it's manifesting itself through different ways, through art, through street art, through um, many, many ways that I cannot even count at this point um, of, of protest and of defiance. And the Islamic Republic, the, the authorities also find are finding um, unusual ways to kind of continue the crackdown because the, the protest is not happening on the streets, but it's happening through different angles of life in Iran. So they are also finding original ways, I have to say, to, to continue their crackdown. And one of these original ways... It was the latest story, which was uh, the poisoning in Iran. Now, people in Iran were really quick in pointing their fingers at the authorities because uh, an operation at this large scale and having access to this amount of chemicals is not possible by just a simple group or certain individuals. So people were quickly saying, this is the Islamic Republic. We cannot say that because there is no evidence of that, but I can understand why everyone in Iran and every Iranian outside thinks, well, there is one culprit, especially when the supreme leader comes out and condemns the attacks and said they should, they should stop. And the moment he says this should stop, it stops. So reading between these lines and putting all dots you know, together, you, there is just, you know, all the indications point to one, basically, entity that is behind these attacks. And um, people believe that these attacks were revenge on schoolgirls who played a pivotal role in these protests, coming out, protesting, or even maintaining the protests inside their schools, burning their scarves, tearing uh, pictures, tearing apart pictures of Iranian leaders or filming themselves, protesting, all of that, which was fueling uh, the protest, um, perhaps looks like a re good reason for authorities or even a fraction within the Islamic Republic, maybe more an extreme fraction within the Islamic Republic to decide to take revenge on this population. Masa, as an Iranian yourself and a very serious journalist, but an Iranian uh, who has watched this your whole life uh, unfold. How challenging is it to cover the story? I mean, after all, you even share a first name with the, the main protagonist of, of the story itself. And half of a surname. <laughs> I mean, right? that's Masa Amini and I'm Masa Aminolahi. But uh, that's true. Um, it's It's been a very challenging story for me. I'm originally from Iran. I was born and raised in that country. I went to school there, university, I worked there. So I completely understand the plight and desperation of women in Iran. And I'm even more touched by the bravery of Iranian women because I grasp the magnitude of this, this bravery and what it takes to one day decide to walk in the streets of the country without wearing your scarf. I could not even dream of that. And often I ask myself, then where does impartiality stand here? Where, how does it manifest itself? Because I have to be an impartial journalist, but at the same time, I cannot 
um, detach myself from emotions because at the end of the day, we are all human beings and we have different filters and it, all stories go through those filters or through different hats that we wear in, in our lives. And um, in fact, a couple of days ago, I read a, a sentence by Christiana Mampour, not about this specific story, but generally about impartiality that really resonated with me, that journalists should seek truthfulness, not neutrality. And I'm giving you the gist of what she said. It's not exact quotes, but something like that. And it really stayed with me because not only with Iran, but also stories that make us really uh, emotional, like, for example, the war in Ukraine. How do we maintain or meet the two, the impartiality and our emotions? How do we um, tell a story in the face of human suffering or atrocities. And I feel like giving voice to minorities, to marginalized groups, to people who have no way to tell their story is actually the, the essence of impartiality. It doesn't mean, impartiality doesn't mean I have to be telling every side of each story. It means I have to provide platform where there is no platform. I have to give voice to a group where they have no means to say what they want to say. And in that sense, also, how to deal with the emotional burden of the story, because it can get really taxing. Um, I feel like I channel that anger or that desperation into creating more content. Every time I felt not only with Iran, but with other stories that stayed with me or made me really desperate or really emotional, I felt like I have even more motive to be able to tell that story, find angles that, that haven't been told or find content to be it for, for public broadcasters so that they have all the different angles of a story to be able to tell that story. And that really helped um, that really helps staying impartial. That really helped with um, telling the story and controlling the emotions, but at the same time, um, feeling like you are not crossing that line between an activist and a journalist. Massa, thank you so much uh, for talking to us. And thank you and your colleagues at the Eurovision Social Newswire for the incredible work you've been doing on this uh, very difficult story. Thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to the Eurovision News Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more from us, please consider subscribing, giving us a five-star review, and telling a friend about us. Thank you.